Hello, and welcome to Principal's Live Lecture. I'm Dr. Kathleen Sullivan, and today I will be talking to you about children's literature. My talk is entitled, Why Good Children's Literature Matters Today. And I will begin with a Bible passage from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 18. At that time, the disciples approached Jesus and said, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? He called a child over, placed it in their midst, and said, Amen, I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And whoever receives one child such as this in my name receives me. I'm sure we've all considered this passage and pondered, how should we become like children? Didn't St. Paul say to the Corinthians, when I was a child, I spoke like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I put away childish things. We know there is a distinction between childish and childlike, but what does it mean to turn? and become like children. I'm currently teaching a course on children's literature to English majors here at Christendom College, and I offer these questions as a guiding theme for our class. What is the difference between childish and childlike? How does reading good children's literature help us to turn and become like children so as to enter the kingdom of heaven? To engage with those questions in this lecture, allow me to present three reasons for why it is important for all of us, children and adults, to read good children's literature, especially today. Overall, I hope to encourage those of us who haven't read a children's book since childhood, or perhaps at all, to pick one up and discover enriching depths in its seeming simplicity. In Lucy Maud Montgomery's classic, Anne of Green Gables, Anne Shirley says, Dear old world, you are very lovely, and I am glad to be alive in you. Children's literature can offer us reminders that there is still loveliness and much to re rejoice about in this world even today. And with the genre's assurance of a happy ending, hope is always present in good children's literature. Reading it, can help strengthen or even restore our practice of hope with wonder, gratitude, and gladness. But first, when I say the phrase children's literature, what comes to mind? Do you think of chapter books such as the Chronicles of Narnia or the Phantom Tollbooth? Maybe you think of books such as Robert McCloskey's Blueberries for Sal where the illustrations are beautiful and engaging, but the focus still is on the words of the story? Do you group within the category children's literature, all picture books, comic books, learning to read books, and so forth? With these examples, you can see how expansive the genre of children's literature can become. So to set some parameters for our purposes, I will focus on chapter books, that star a child protagonist, 
or animal protagonist, because of course we can't ignore the wind in the willows or Beatrix Potter's Peter Rabbit. And I will use examples from the golden age of children's literature, which literary historians say began with Lewis Carroll's Alice's Adventures in Wonderland in 1865 and ended after World War I with A.A. A. Milne's Winnie the Pooh, published in 1926. Overall, if considering whether an adult should read a children's story, I will echo C.S. Lewis who said, quote, a children's story which is enjoyed only by children is a bad children's story. So to return to our original questions, why does reading good children's literature matter today? And how does this literature help us to turn and become like children so as to enter the kingdom of heaven? I'd like to offer three reasons that seem to be foundational in good children's literature. Number one, they offer a wardrobe of images. Number two, they allow us to focus on the flower. And number three, they offer a harvest of stories. As I read passages from works of the golden age of children's literature to explain these themes, I hope you'll also hear the excellent quality of writing. They are beautifully written. Not only do complex sentence structures and exquisite vocabulary abound, but also protagonists are quite memorable. So first, good children's literature offers readers a wardrobe of images. This comes from a phrase, surprisingly not from C.S. Lewis, but rather from Edmund Burke's 1790 work, Reflections on the Revolution in France. In it, he mentions that man has a, quote, wardrobe of the moral imagination. Other philosophers and scholars have used that phrase, wardrobe of the moral imagination, to indicate the collection of ideas, or principles that we gather, store, and put on, clothe ourselves in or the world so as to understand the world around us, particularly with regard to moral principles. William Kirkpatrick, in his work, Books That Build Character, A Guide to Teaching Your Child Moral Values Through Stories, writes, quote, children who read have broader sympathies and a larger picture of life. They develop more powerful, healthy, and discerning imaginations. And imagination is one of the keys to virtue. It's not enough to know what is right. It is also necessary to desire to do right. Desire, in turn, is directed to a large extent by imagination." End quote. Good children's literature engages our imagination, leading us to desire certain clothes or lives that we have stored in our mental wardrobe and try them on. Such a practice can help us deal with challenges in our lives. For an example, let us look at Mark Twain's The Adventures of Tom Sawyer, which features the irrepressible, imaginative, and adventurous 12-year-old Tom. In one episode, he and Becky Thatcher become lost in the caves by the Mississippi River during a class field trip. 
Prior to this episode, and all throughout the book, Tom actively uses his imagination, which has been nourished by stories and literature. He often imagines various lies for himself. At one point, he is a brave outlaw like Robin Hood. Other times, he pictures himself as a fearless pirate and other such valiant, although perhaps not so virtuous, heroes. These playful imaginings, however, allow Tom to maintain his sense of adventure and most importantly, to enact his courage in the face of true danger. When the situation in the caves becomes desperate, we see the difference between the two children. Becky Thatcher, not so used to opening the wardrobe of images as Tom, quickly collapses into despair. It has been almost three days lost in the caves. Their last candle has gone out, and all the scraps of food that Tom had stored in his pockets have been eaten. Yet, Tom does not give up. Mark Twain writes, quote, Tom proposed to explore another passage. He felt willing to risk danger and all other terrors. But Becky was very weak. She had sunk into a dreary apathy and would not be roused. She said she would wait now where she was and die. It would not be long. She told Tom to go with the kite string and explore if he chose, but she implored him to come back every little while and speak to her, and she made him promise that when the awful time came, he would stay by her and hold her hand until all was over. Tom made a show of being confident of finding the searchers or an escape from the cave. Then he took the kite line in hand, and when groping down one of the passages on his hands and knees, distressed with hunger, and sick with bodings of coming doom." End quote. And so he bravely goes into the darkness. Tom uses his wardrobe of images to take on the role of courageous hero, bold adventurer who will not give up the quest. He enacts these heroic roles, perseveres, and at long last sees a glimmer of light which does lead him and Becky to the world above. Tom Sawyer's active use of his imagination in playtime had given him real virtues of courage, perseverance, and especially the virtue of hope, not just for himself, but for another, to use when it mattered most. Most children's stories are filled with adventures, during which the protagonist faces dangers and trials, as C.S. Lewis writes, quote, since it is so likely that children will meet cruel enemies in life, let them at least have heard of brave knights and heroic courage. By fighting the dragon alongside the hero in the story, or by searching for an escape from the caves alongside Tom Sawyer, we store up images in our mental wardrobe and through our imagination we strengthen the virtues needed to face the real challenges of our lives. For another example of using the wardrobe of images in reference to the moral imagination, not so dramatic but still poignant example, I turn to Anne of Green Gables. If you haven't read it, and I hope you do someday, you'll learn that an orphan girl Anne is adopted by elderly siblings Marilla and Matthew Cuthbert 
and comes to live with them at their home, Green Gables, in Prince Edward Island. The majority of the story focuses on Anne when she is 11 years old, and she, like Tom Sawyer, has an active imagination. Her exercise of her wardrobe of images, which has been furnished by reading stories and poetry, often leads her into misadventures when she is young. But at the end of the story, Anne is 16 years old, graduated high school, she's attained her teaching license, and has just won a scholarship to study literature in college. Anne is beyond excited about college. Yet, news arrives that Green Gables, the home she's grown to love so much, may have to be sold. She cannot bear this thought. And so Lucy Maud Montgomery, the author, writes, quote, Anne went to her room and sat down by her window in the darkness alone, with her tears and with her heaviness of heart. How sadly things had changed since she had sat there the night after coming home. Then she had been full of hope and joy and the future had looked rosy with promise. Anne felt as if she had lived years since then. But before she went to bed, there was a smile on her lips and peace in her heart. She had looked her duty courageously in the face and found it a friend, as duty ever is when we meet it frankly." End quote. What happened to Anne between the moments of sitting by her window with a heavy heart and going to bed with a peaceful heart? How does such a change occur? Well, Anne has opened her wardrobe of images. She has, perhaps reluctantly at first, stored away Anne in her college dress studying literature and tried on Anne staying at home at Green Gables, teaching in the local school. Maybe she tried on many more images before going to bed, but the end result is peace. Anne is able to see herself in her imagination in a manner that brings joy. She has looked beyond the now and her personal desires to realize a greater desire, one that involves the good of others. Catherine Rundle, in her short work, Why You Should Read Children's Books Even Though You Are So Old and Wise, writes that using the moral imagination is, quote, the ability of using our ethical perception to step beyond the limits of the fleeting events of each moment and beyond the limits of private experience." End quote. Anne's ethical perception is clear and active, primarily because she had had such a lively imagination as a young girl. She had been used to imagining herself in different clothes of her mental wardrobe, such that when making an important, and in this case, a virtuous decision, she chooses rightly. Seeing the goodness in Anne's actions reminds us to use our own moral imagination to perceive others' goods when facing similarly important decisions, or even just simple daily choices. And now the second reason for why reading good children's literature matters today is that it helps us to focus on the flower. Children notice details, 
size and small things matter. I'm sure I wasn't the only one spending hours as a kid using my science kit magnifying glass to explore the world under my feet. The grass, ants, rocks, even different colors of dirt all had a, quote, arresting strangeness, quote, end quote, to use J.R.R. Tolkien's term of an essential quality of fantasy literature. Something catches our interest. We pause. Perhaps we crouch down to further examine it. We wonder about it. We ponder it. Children's literature often emphasizes moments when a character is entranced by a small image or a little detail. What is important about this? Well, one way to manage our daily responsibilities and endless to-do list, or to handle an overwhelmingly emotional experience, is to focus on one concrete image. It can help root us in reality and ground us in truth. Let me read a passage from Francis Hodgen Burnett's The Secret Garden to illustrate this theme. And you'll note that in this example, the benefit is given to the adult of the story. For context, 10-year-old Mary Lennox was orphaned in India and brought to England to live with her uncle. She's been captivated by a secret garden on the estate of her uncle, who is often absent. Archibald Craven, who, suffering for years from the death of his beloved wife, travels the world, trying to escape his pain. In the closing chapter of the book, Archibald Craving is wandering the Swiss Alps. Quote, While the secret garden was coming alive, and two children were coming alive with it, there was a man wandering about certain faraway beautiful places in the Norwegian fjords and the valleys and mountains of Switzerland. And he was a man who for 10 years had kept his mind filled with dark and heartbroken thinking. He had not been courageous. He had never tried to put any other thought in the place of the dark ones. He had forgotten and deserted his home and his duties. He had traveled far and wide. He had been in the most beautiful places in Europe, though he had remained nowhere more than a few days. He had chosen the quietest and remotest spots. He had been on the tops of mountains whose heads were in the clouds and had looked down on other mountains when the sun rose and touched them with such light as made it seem as if the world were just being born. But the light had never seemed to touch himself. Until one day when he realized that for the first time in 10 years, a strange thing had happened, end quote. I'll pause here to emphasize the restless nature of Archibald Craven and his inability to focus on anything, the vastness of the mountains and how insurmountable they are seem to mirror his own boundless emptiness and darkness. But now note what happens, quote, he was in another wonderful valley and had been walking alone through such beauty as might have lifted any man's soul out of shadow, yet it had not lifted his. But at last he had felt tired and had thrown himself down to rest on a carpet of moss by a stream. It was a clear little stream 
which ran quite merrily along its narrow way through the luscious, damp greenness. He saw birds come and dip their heads to drink in it, then flick their wings and fly away. The valley was very, very still. As he sat gazing into the clear running of the water, Archibald Craven gradually felt his mind and body both grow quiet, as quiet as the valley itself. He wondered if he were going to sleep, but he was not. He sat and gazed at the sunlit water, and his eyes began to see things growing at its edge. There was one lovely mass of blue forget-me-nots growing so close to the stream that its leaves were wet. And at these, he found himself looking as he remembered he had looked at such things years ago." End quote. Did you hear the movement in his focus? Archibald Craven's attention is first drawn to the birds flying in the sky, then follows them as they get a drink from the river. He watches the water then in all its flowing clarity. Finally, he notices the blue flowers which have been there all along, and he can focus on them. He even sees the parts of the flowers, noting water on their leaves. At this moment, the vast emptiness in his heart begins to be filled with light and life, and it began with one rooted concrete image. This focus on the flower moment, which occurs in quiet and stillness, is an example of how bringing our attention to something concrete and real helps ground ourselves in that truth. Reading good children's literature reminds us to focus on small things in quiet stillness in order to help manage that endless and overwhelming sweep of ideas and noise that crowd our days. This passage reminds us to focus on the flower, to root ourselves in the reality of what is true. And finally, the third reason for why good children literature is important to read, especially today in a society where memory skills are not often put to use, nor storytelling skills, and it is that they offer us a harvest of stories. The more stories we read, the more we gain through living those lives in our imagination. And the more we reread good literature, the more those stories stay in our memories. We gather a harvest which can nourish us and others. And I'll use the wind and the willows to explain this theme. In the book, four animal friends, Ratty, Mole, Badger, and Mr. Toad all have adventures by the riverbank. For, quote, there is nothing, absolutely nothing, half so much worth doing as simply messing about in boats, end quote. But one day, a sea rat comes to the riverbank and encounters Ratty. The sea rat tells many adventures and tales of his trips overseas, his journey to Constantinople, the Grecian Isles, Venice, France, Spain, up the coast of Devon in England. And as he talks, Ratty begins to feel restless and anxious about his own stationary life. Kenneth Graham, the author, writes, quote, The talk, 
the wonderful talk flowed on. Or was it speech entirely? Or did it pass at times into song, chanty of the sailors weighing the dripping anchor, sonorous hum of the shrouds in a tearing northeaster, ballad of the fisherman hauling his nets at sundown against an apricot sky, chords of guitar and mandolin from gondolas. With beating heart, Raddy followed the adventures of a dozen seaports, the fights, the escapes, the rallies, the comradeships, the gallant undertakings. He searched islands for treasures, fished in still lagoons, and dozed day long on warm white sands. Again, note the exquisite writing as Raddy receives what he characterizes admiringly as the sea rat's harvest of story. It is powerful enough to make Raddy feel that his own life is small and circumscribed when compared to the full harvest that the sea rat has gathered with his adventures. And so Raddy begins to pack up his little house to set off on a journey. In the midst of his restless anxiety, his friend Mole comes by and worried about Raddy's agitation, Mole begins to tell his friends of the actual harvest right outside his door. Mole speaks of, quote, the harvest that was being gathered in, the towering wagons and their straining teams, the growing haystacks, and the large moon rising over bare acres dotted with sheaves. He talked of the reddening apples around, of the browning nuts, of jams and preserves and the distilling of cordials. Till by easy, easy stages such as these, he reached midwinter, its hearty joys and its snug home life, and then he became simply lyrical. By degrees, Raddy began to sit up and join in, and his dull eyes brightened." End quote. This is a powerful passage for two reasons. First, it reveals the truth that stories are a harvest. We grow, leave home, travel, encounter new places, new people, and our adventures become stories that we can share with others. Do we think of these moments and experiences in our lives as stories? Have we harvested them, shared them, revisited them? For as Raddy says, these stories are a harvest that can, quote, warm our latter days with gallant memories, end quote. Yet this passage also reminds us of another truth. What if we do not travel or move away from our hometown or have any grand adventures? Are we less nourished, less able to warm our latter days with memories? not at all. There's plenty of harvest right where we are. Mole reminds his friend of the good and real harvest that is present at his home. Mole's description of the goodness right outside the door is an excellent example of how reading good children's literature can brighten the ordinary world around us into something extraordinary. Tolkien calls this experience a recovery and a consolation. In his influential essay on fairy stories, Tolkien notes how reading fantasy literature acts on our sight like clearing the dirt from a smudged window. We often become discouraged and tired by the demands of our responsibilities or by the despair and darkness of today's culture, and we forget to see goodness and beauty around us. So we take a needed break and enter the world of Middle Earth and the Lord of the Rings, for example. There we encounter the Ents, the talking trees, then when we return to our world and its responsibilities, we feel refreshed. We are now delighted by the sound of leaves blowing in the wind, 
For seeing them through the lens of literature, they are no longer dull background noise, but they are enchanted beings, talking, whispering, singing. We may now experience a sense of wonder, gladness, a delightful refreshment at seeing the old things anew. So when Mole uses his words filled with concrete images of reddening apples and browning nuts, Raddy's vision of the goodness around him is recovered, and he experiences a refreshing consolation. Tolkien characterizes this consolation as the, quote, joy of a happy ending. So I will conclude this talk by speaking of the good, of good children's literature most identifiable characteristic, the happy ending. Children's author Natalie Babbitt wrote an article about children's literature entitled, quote, the happy ending, of course, and also joy. She writes that there's a difference between a sugar-coated happy ending, quote, tacked on primarily to spare the child any glimpse of pain or suffering, end quote, but the true happy ending, quote, turns a story ultimately toward hope rather than resignation. It is not without pain, not without violence, not without grief, but in the end, somehow, everything will always be all right. To be sure, there are stories for adults which end happily, but it is a qualified happiness, the quiet happiness of characters who have made their peace with their own compromises." End quote. Natalie Babbitt gives at this moment an example from Tolstoy's War and Peace, and then concludes her article with, quote, not so with Ratty and Mole and Toad. Their story ends this way. Quote, this is from The Wind in the Willows. The animals continue to live their lives in great joy and contentment. Sometimes, in the course of long summer evenings, the friends would take a stroll together, and it was pleasing to see how respectfully they were greeted. There goes the great Mr. Toad, and there's the gallant water rat, and yonder comes the famous Mr. Mole." End quote. As her article recognizes, good children's literature unabashedly rejoices in the realized hope of a happy ending. So, to recap, why does good children's literature matter today? How can it help us to turn and become like children? I'll offer one more quote. This is from Catherine Rundle's Why You Should Read Children's Books, Even Though You Are So Old and Wise, before concluding. And Rundle writes, quote, Children's books spoke and still speak of hope. They say, look, this is what bravery looks like. This is what generosity looks like. They tell me through the medium of wizards and lions and talking spiders that this is a world we live in, a world full of people who tell jokes and work and endure. Children's books say the world is huge. They say hope counts for something. They say bravery will matter. Wit will matter. Empathy will matter. Love will matter." End quote. In conclusion, Reading good children's stories can help awaken our creative and moral imagination, root ourselves in truth, and nourish us and others with a bountiful harvest. Through it all, good children's literature's offering of a happy ending reminds us of the happy ending, contemplating and immersing ourselves in the highest good for all eternity. And until then, we can have the hope and confidence to say with Anne Shirley, dear old worlds, you are very lovely, and I am glad to be alive in you. Thank you. Okay, 
So at this time, we have some questions that have been submitted prior to this talk and during. So I will begin. One of the questions is, what is a good source for children's literature with a spiritual element? And I will actually point you to the work I had quoted from. It's William Kirkpatrick, Books That Build Character, A Guide to Teaching Your Child Moral Values Through Stories. And there's several works like this, actually. There's one that's called Before Austin Comes Aesop. It's more of a reading list, but it gives some helpful um, ways in which to approach good reading for your children and for yourselves. There's another one called The Mysteries of Life in Children's Literature. So, so there's, there's several works out there as good, helpful sources um, to approach children's look from that spiritual element. Okay, and then another question is, what are the standards to determine if a story is worth reading and studying? Well, I would recap what I had presented in today's talk, but I'll also turn you towards C.S. Lewis and J.R.R. Tolkien. Both of them have excellent resources and essays on writing, specifically fantasy literature, but Tolkien has in his On Fairy Stories essay, he has these three criteria of fantasy. And I spoke to a little bit about them today, namely that these good works of literature can offer you a chance for a healthy escape. We all get tired by our day-to-day, -day, discouraged by you know, the state of the world as it is, and so we need to refresh ourselves. And so he says that the escape into fantasy can offer us the second criteria, a recovery. So that's that revision, the clearing off your smudged windows and be able to see the world with fresh eyes. And then most importantly, it offers us a consolation. And that is the surprise, the joy, the restoration of wonder that we can receive after reading a good work that shows us truth, that shows us beauty, shows us the goodness here in our, in our lives. So it's a, it's a long essay, but well worth, well worth uh, the effort to work your way through it. And then C.S. Lewis has a great essay called On Three Ways of Writing for Children. And he says there's a bad way. The first way is don't do this. It's when you think, ah, I have something that children must hear, and you, and you sort of impose your vision for your audience. He says, that's not a good way of writing. He says, another way of writing for children is you start by telling a story. And this is what Tolkien did. He wrote, you know, the letters of Father Christmas to his children. A.A. Milne started his whole Winnie the Pooh series by telling sto bedtime stories to his son. Kenneth Graham also started The Wind in the Willows as bedtime stories to his son. And famously, you may have heard Lewis Carroll uh, was going rowing on the Thames uh, with another friend and these three little girls who begged and demanded a story. And that's where the golden afternoon of Alice in Wonderland became. So you can start by telling stories to children around you. And eventually, if they say, tell it again, tell it again, which I'm sure they will, you write it down. And I think it was, I think it might have been Kenneth Graham who said his son was very particular and he would say, dad, dad, no. That it wasn't the way, you know, the way you're telling it tonight wasn't the way you told it last night. And so that's when he began writing it down. So then the third way of writing a good a children's story, and in particular, um, you can hold this as a standard as well, is you have to have a good concrete image. 
So C.S. Lewis says that he had the image in his mind of a lamppost and a fawn carrying an umbrella. And then other images came to mind, and he, he realized the author in him was like, well, I have to draw these together. I have to connect them. And he realized that the form of a children's story is best, was the best form to use in order to connect those images and reveal them. So yes, I'll point you to Lewis and Tolkien for good standards. OK, let's see. John Sr. says that one must read good books before studying great books. Are there examples of good books for children and for us today? Yes, I would say, well, first of all, to go back to the classics, I spoke of the golden age of children's literature, where really we see the focus on crafting a good story. We're not so much focused on a message or a moral. These authors are writing such that anyone can read these stories, and they are, they are well written. Um, so we go back to those classics, but there are good stories today. I'm always on the search for, for um, living authors today that, that also can feed us with good books. Um, and there are, I would, I would suggest the Green Ember series are great, and Kate DiCamillo has some beautiful stories. They're very simplistically written, but there's, there's some uh, profound truths in them. I also enjoy the Penderwicks. If anybody has had adventures with the Penderwicks, um, which I think was the author's attempt to retell Little Woman, but in, in a different way. Um, but overall, to this work that I had mentioned before, before Austin comes Aesop, these, reading these stories for the first time or going back to them, they're a way to, again, refresh yourselves such that you might feel more nourished and want meatier works of literature. One of the commentaries I read about reading The Wind in the Willows, which has very complex sentence structures. There are some sentences that are half a page long, and it's just one sentence. Uh, that commentator said, reading The Wind in the Willows prepared him to read Tolstoy and Dostoevsky, which if you've read any of those novels, they are quite complex and, um, and also very nourishing. Okay, let's see. How does an educator help inform parents and others of the importance of selecting quality literature? For that, I would say if you're teaching children's literature or um, working with those who are teaching children's literature or teaching children in general, choosing the stories that focus on the story. So we all know our fairy tales and Aesop's fables in particular. You read Aesop's fable and at the end of it, the moral of this story is there's a specific lesson to be learned. So fairy tales and folk tales, um, fables in that manner, the story is used more as an instrument to reveal that message. But what I would say of, of great works of children's literature is the story itself is the message. So there's a kind of a side note, but there's, there's sort of this story, which I hope is true, about Flannery O'Connor, who was asked to speak to a university. And she read one of her short stories to the college students sitting in the university audience. And at the end, a student raised his hand and asked, you know, said, thank you very much, Miss O'Connor, for reading us your story, but what does it mean? And apparently, as, as the story goes, Flannery O'Connor flipped back to the beginning 
and started reading the story all over again. So, uh, but of course, this didn't say that we can't teach Flannery O'Connor and, and find some uh, fruits to to um, gather from it. But the the good story, the good stories, I would say, operates uh, first to engage you with that level of the characters and the plots that they're involved in, and the beauty of the writing. And the more you return to it, the more truth you can glean from it. Okay, let's see. Um, is it better to Disneyfy good children's literature in order to reach a wider audience, or stick with the original and perhaps we'd only reach a smaller audience? I'm sure we've all seen Disney movies, and I'm sure we've all had our fair share of conversations on whether we should even watch the Disney movie or how it changed the original. And so I think, I think that probably might depend on your family and preferences. Uh, there was a rule in, in our household, my household growing up with my parents, we had to read the story first before we watched the movie. So I think I was uh, grateful and blessed to have been able to have had the original, uh, to sort of feed myself on the original stories uh, before seeing the Disney movie. But some of those original fairy stories are terrifying and, and gruesome. And so uh, it's, it's also nice to go back afterwards and see, perhaps as you're watching the movie, why they would change things in a certain way and, um, and what, what, you know, in that comparison, what goods can we see in both of them. Um, but I would also say if you, yeah, <laughs> I'm always going to be the one to say read the book first. Um, but if you... If you can't read the book, at least at least watch the movie knowing that there's a source for it, and then hopefully someday you can come back to that source. Okay, I do see that there's many more questions, but we are reaching the end of our time. So I would encourage you to keep submitting questions. I can still receive the questions, and I can find ways to respond. So I want to thank you all for attending this Principles live lecture. And you can, of course, go to principles.com to get a recording of this and other live lectures. So thank you again. And I hope you pick up a children's book and enjoy. Thank you for joining us for today's Principles live lecture. Principles is made possible by our President's Council, our Principal Society, and all of our benefactors who share with the wider world the truths of wisdom and knowledge that students receive here at Christendom College. And if you're not yet a Principal Society member, please consider joining us and making this content free for others. Thank you so much and God bless you.